You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Today's Bible reading is Exodus 32, verse 1 to 14. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who, go, who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, in the in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent them from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Amy. I really appreciate that. And uh, just hi from me too. Obviously, we're all in a pretty strange situation at the moment, uh, back into lockdown, uh, but also so many of our people in the very extraordinary situation of uh, a 14-day quarantine. And just to reiterate what Koi said, uh, we want to support you in this. I can no longer personally buy you shopping, but I certainly can pray for you and with you, and we could uh, organise other people to do those things as well. Uh, This is a pretty unique and and strange situation, and so we really want to make sure that we're supporting you and and just getting around you. Uh, So, yeah, just know that we're thinking of you and and all of that. 
I had thought perhaps we should do something different today because of that situation. But at the same time, it's actually really helpful for us to keep doing the things that give us some sense of certainty and continuation and, and consistency. So we're going to be continuing to go through Exodus. And yet it's a pretty strange passage today. It is, it's one of the hardest and probably saddest passages in all of Exodus. This is the famous moment where God's people turn from worshipping God and worship a golden calf and God uh, is angered by that and judges them for it. So it's a hard passage that we're going to get into. Uh, but one I, I think will also help us see the nature of sin, uh, the importance of God's just response and the validity of his anger, but also the hope that we have of true resolution and forgiveness. So how about we pray as we get into it? Father, I just want to thank you for your word. I thank you that it's true and relevant for us. Please help us to listen and learn and to find comfort and, and uh, uh, support today in your word, in your truth. Thank you for all of these people who have joined us today. Thank you that we can still meet uh, even at, at a distance. Uh, we thank you that you bring us together and we remain a church. So please help us to enjoy that today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's worth asking, what exactly is the sin of the Israelites with the golden calf? Essentially, what I'm asking is, did they break the first commandment or the second commandment or both? You see, a few weeks ago, we saw that God gave his people the Ten Commandments, the first two of which talk about how God is to be worshipped. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. Don't worship anything other than Yahweh, the true God. And then the second commandment says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And so if the first commandment is about not worshipping other gods, then the second commandment is about not worshipping the right God the wrong way. Uh, they must not create some physical representation of Yahweh to use in their worship. So when Israel made this golden calf, did they break the first commandment or the second commandment or both? You see, it's a little hard to tell. In verse 1, the people come to Aaron demanding that he make them gods, plural, which makes it sound like they're breaking the first commandment. But Aaron's response suggests that he saw the golden calf as a kind of representation of Yahweh. He makes a, the calf and he presents it to the people and says, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, i.e. To, to Yahweh, to God. And what's tricky is that the word gods is in the Hebrew Elohim, which means either gods, plural, or gods, singular. And so it's not quite clear what's happening here. Are they making up new gods or are they making up a new way to worship the true God? Are they worshipping the wrong God or are they worshipping the right God, the right God the wrong way? Now, my sense is that the people wanted to create their own gods, but Aaron's trying to redirect them. Uh, it's hard to tell, but in a sense it doesn't matter because I think the two things are linked. Just think about what's going on here. Have a look how they come to Aaron in the first place. Verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. Just remember, God's people are at Mount Sinai. They've received the Ten Commandments. And so then Moses, though, went up on the mountain alone to hear more from God. But that's now six weeks ago and the people are getting restless. God seems absent. He seems distant, and they don't like this. They want to feel like God is right near them. They want something tangible. Make us gods who shall go before us. 
Now, the irony here, of course, is that God has been really present and really tangible. I mean, think about all the things that these people have seen. They've seen God's power among them in the plagues in Egypt. They've experienced his miraculous deliverance at the Red Sea. Oh, dear. Life on Zoom, life in this world. Let's hope they don't call back. <laughs> but anyway, what I'm trying to say is God's, God's people have experienced God in, in really tangible ways. They've seen God's power among them in the plagues. They've experienced his miraculous deliverance at the Red Sea. They've trembled as he came down to the mountain in fire and lightning in Exodus 19, and all along, all through their journeys, God has gone before them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, journeying with them every step of the way, a constant presence 24-7. He has been exactly what they're asking for. So what more could they want? Well, the one thing that God is not willing to do is he won't make himself present in a statue or an idol like they want. Now, why is that? Why does God forbid carved images to be made of him? Why is God so against this? I mean, what's the harm in it if it helps people focus on him? Couldn't it help them worship him? Well, it's because an image of God would constrain him, would limit him. You see, God is the sovereign creator who rules over all things and any physical representation would just limit and, and sort of shrink him, bring him down to the level of his creation, as Andrew Reid puts it. An image is used to capture and domesticate a God, but God is the free and sovereign Lord who cannot be tamed, Reid says. And so what God has a problem with is, is the heart that's behind it. As Tim Chester writes, they want a God who is visible and manageable. So when people make images of God, they're trying to shrink him down. We're trying to fit him into our mould. And ultimately, we're trying to remake God. That's what the Israelites are doing. They're dissatisfied with the God who's revealed himself to them. And so they're trying to create a different God. That's what they're doing with the golden calf. Whether or not they thought of this calf as Yahweh, it wasn't actually Yahweh. It wasn't the God that they knew. It was a God that they were making up. And that's what happens when we make uh, images as well. Now, now, why would we do this? Why are the God's people doing this? Well, read on. Just see how they worship around the calf. Aaron announces the plan. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And then we're told in verse 6, they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, that word play is sometimes translated as revelry, but it also has sexual connotations. Basically, it's hinting at something like an orgy. That's why they created this calf. That's why they wanted this different God. They wanted a God who would not stop them from doing the things that they wanted to do. In verse 25, we're told that they broke loose. They're trying to get away from God's control. That's why they've created this other God. As R.C. Sproul explains, the cow gave no law and demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb and impotent. But at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them to judgment. And it's the same for us as well. See, we are tempted to try and remake God as well. 
Tim Chester writes, beware any sentence on another's lips or on your in your own head that begins, I like to think of God as, or I don't think God would be like this. You see what we're doing? It, we're trying to create another God. We're trying to create a different version of God, a God that we're more comfortable with. You see, we might feel like the God of the Bible is limiting us. He has certain laws or values that would go against our desires, and so we might change him to convince ourselves that God does not forbid us from doing the things that we want to do. Chester goes on, it is common in our culture for people to think that they can decide what God is like. In this way, we create our own version of God. We want to think of God as loving but not holy. We want a God who is merciful but not a judge. We create a God of our own imagining. It's not so far removed from worshipping an idol that we've made. We may, not, we may not have a metal idol, but we do have a mental idol. Really what we're doing here is we're trying to redefine God. We, the creation, is creating our own God, our own version of God, a God that we're comfortable with, a God that we want, a God that will fit in our world because we don't want to fit in his world. That's the sin of the Israelites, and it's our sin too. And I want you to see now just how much it offends God. Verse 7, and the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Do you see here how God distances himself from his people? They're your people, Moses, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. And there's something so sad about this because God hasn't spoken like this previously. Exodus 3 at the burning bush, the Lord said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. And that's why he'd done everything. I'm bringing my people up out of Egypt. These are my people. I love them. I care for them. I want to be with them. But now, because of their sin, he is distancing himself from them. They have turned aside quickly. Verse eight, they, uh, verse 9, they are a stiff-necked people. They're like an ox that refuses to be led. And so God tells Moses that he will judge them. Verse 10, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God is talking about destroying them and starting again. Now, this might sound harsh, but we need to understand the sin of the people. I mean, just go back to Exodus 20 and, and see how God started the Ten Commandments. Verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and so in light of that, you shall have no other gods before me. He's saying, you should worship me alone because I deserve it. That's what God is saying. I, he's given them every good thing. He's chosen them and rescued them, protected them, trained them, educated them. He's, he's entered into a relationship with them, but now they've thrown that in his face. Look at what they say, verse 4. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It's like plagiarism. They're taking the honour due to God and throwing it on someone else, this stupid calf. And I want you to see how, how they give themselves so completely to this calf. 
So Aaron says, give me your gold, and they do it straight away without question, without hesitation. They willingly give everything to Aaron as much as they can. They're almost desperate to do that. They want to worship and give all that they have to this thing. Imagine how that feels for God. This would be like a a married person seeing their spouse give themselves to someone else and then almost flaunt that, you know, giving this other person their wedding ring or going to all the special places that you've shared with your spouse, going with this other person. It's they're adulterers. They've broken the covenant that they have with God. God has been so good to them and they're throwing that in his face. Really what they've done is they're disowning God. They're distancing themselves from him, disdaining their identity as his people. And so God's response is really just giving them what they've asked for, what they want. He's letting them go. Now things look really bleak for Israel. But then Moses intervenes, verse 11, but Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? He's reaching out to God. He's pleading with God for mercy. And then he makes his case in verse 11 to 13. He's like a lawyer pleading for his people. Uh, Philip Ryken points out the, the various aspects to the argument, five aspects. First of all, says Riken, Moses appeals to God's fatherly affection. Verse 11, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Yes, God has said, Moses, they're your people. But Moses is now saying, no, 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 that's not true. They're still your people. Exodus 4, Israel is my firstborn son, God said. And so he can't disown them. That's what Moses is saying. Secondly, Moses appeals to God's investment in his people, reminding him of just how much he's done for them in the past. Verse 11, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? As Riken puts it, God was much too involved in the Exodus to quit now. How could he destroy the very people he'd taken so much trouble to save? Moses is saying, look, you've done all of this. You can't stop now. And then Moses suggests that to stop now would be to risk God's reputation. Verse 12, why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? You see, God had saved his people to exalt his name, to show his power. But to destroy them now could undo that and make the Egyptians and the other nations think less of him. And then fourthly, Moses appeals to God's merciful compassion. Verse 12, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. He's pleading on God to to be kind, to to be merciful, because he understands that this is God's character. Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Moses is almost pulling on God's heartstrings. Remember who you are. And then finally, ultimately, Moses reminds God of his covenant with Israel. Verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. He's saying, Please remember your promises. Remember the agreement that you made. Your people may have broken the covenant, but don't you do it. Remember who you are. 
Well, it's an extraordinary speech. And it really shows Moses' understanding of who God is and his courage and boldness to approach him. And it works. Verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. There will still be consequences. We'll see that in a moment. But God will not mete out the full punishment that Israel's sin deserves. And it's all because Moses has intervened. Moses has stepped into the breach. Now, before we go on, though, that means that we need to do a little bit of deep theology. You see, this is kind of a confusing and and confronting almost picture. It sounds like God has changed his mind because of what Moses has said, and that raises some big questions for us. You see, we believe that God is sovereign and eternal and all-knowing. He's in charge of everything. He knows everything that will happen because he's planned it out. That means that all of his decrees will come to pass. Isaiah 46, God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. See, God knows everything that's going to happen. So there's no reason for him to change direction or switch to plan plan B. Numbers 23, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? And yet right here, It seems like God has changed his mind. He said that he would destroy them, but now he's relented from the disaster that he had spoken of. So how does this work? Well, it all hinges on Moses' intervention. Just look again at verse 10. God says, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. Let me alone. Just, Just... It's almost like God is saying, just leave me be. But then Moses refuses to leave him be. He will not let him alone. He pleads for his people. He implores God to show mercy. He mediates for his people. And this is crucial because it seems like God wouldn't have done this unless Moses had stepped in. That's what we're told in Psalm Psalm 106, that we're told that God's people sinned, they made this calf, they worshipped the metal image. And then verse 23, therefore God said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in, the pre- stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. See what the psalm's saying. God would have destroyed them unless Moses had acted. So I think what's happening here is when God says, let me alone, he's inviting Moses to intervene. Now, if Moses hadn't done that, then God's wrath would have come. But Moses did intervene, and so God was merciful. This is still complicated stuff. Riken says the important phrase is leave me alone. As the mediator, Moses stands between God and his people. Under what circumstances would God destroy Israel and start over with Moses? Only if the mediator were to stop praying for his people. Another writer says, God himself leaves the door open for intercession. He allows himself to be persuaded because that's what a mediator is for. How does that fit with this idea that God knows everything and plans everything out? Well, I think that God uh, made Moses' mediation part of his plans. God resolved 
that he would destroy his people unless Moses intervened. But then he also decreed that Moses would intervene. As Riken puts it, Moses was not changing God's plans, he was carrying them out. Now, I know all of this seems pretty technical, complicated, happy to chat with you more uh, offline. Don't stress if you don't understand it all or if you even disagree. That's totally fine. What I want us to look beyond that, though, is to see these two big things of mercy and mediation. Moses mediates and God shows mercy. Moses appeals to God's character, his steadfast, patient, forgiving love, his gracious promises, and then God responds. He shows mercy. He keeps loving. He upholds his promises. But I also want you to see here that there's a limit to it as well. You see, there are still consequences for the people. After Moses comes down from the mountain, he is called upon by God to execute God's judgment. First of all, he destroys the calf, grounding it to power, uh, powder and scattering it over the water, then making the people drink it, symbolic perhaps of how we have to absorb the consequences of our sin sometimes. And then Moses, at God's command, sends the men of Levi, the priests, out among the people and executes 3,000 of them. We're not sure why these 3,000. Perhaps they were the ringleaders of this. And then down in verse 35, God himself enacts his judgment. Verse 35, then the Lord sent a plague on his people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. And even though they continue on, the relationship feels different. God sends them on their way, but he's no longer as close as he was. Verse Three of, verse, of chapter 33, you will go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when God's people hear this, we're told in verse 4 that the people heard this disastrous word and they mourned. And so it feels kind of strange. God has shown mercy And yet that mercy is sort of restricted. It's not a full and complete mercy. There's still problems here. He hasn't destroyed them completely, but there have still been punishments. There have still been consequences. And so it feels strained. It feels like they're still at a distance, that God is not entirely satisfied with them. But even amidst this, we start to see what might be required to fix things. You see the first hint of this at the end of chapter 32. After the punishment of some of the people, we're told, uh, sorry, I'm just getting another phone call. (laughs) After the, uh, that was the DHS. After the punishment of some of the people, we're told in verse 30, the next day Moses said to the people, you've seen the great sin and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. See, Moses recognises that God uh, has a right to be angry, but he also hopes that God can be uh, satisfied with an atonement, that something can be done to make up for for the sin. So Moses goes up to God and offers himself as a sacrifice. Moses returned to the Lord, verse 31, and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin, But if not, please block me out of your books that you have written. This is an extraordinary moment. See, Moses senses that God uh, demands an atonement 
for some recompense for their sin. And so he offers himself, blot me out of your book rather than them. I would rather take your punishment if it meant that the people didn't have to take it. It's an incredible example of self-sacrificial love. Judge me rather than them. I'm willing to take this as long as they get out. It's so beautiful. But I want you to see God's response, verse 33. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you. He's basically saying, thank you, but no thank you. Uh, Moses, you actually can't atone for their sin. You're not able to. And yet it points to something about how we can ultimately be forgiven. See, I think Moses was onto something. God's people had sinned. They deserved to be destroyed. He, he could see that uh, the only way that could be atoned for was if someone stood in the place for one person to take the punishment for everyone else. He wasn't able to. You see, Moses, for all of his qualities and his character, was still sinful. In fact, ultimately, he would actually be barred from the promised land himself because of his sin. But someone else was different. Someone else would be able to take their sin and our sin. And that's Jesus, because he was perfect. And this is the thing. See, right throughout the history of Israel, we see this kind of thing repeated again and again. The people are sinful and their leaders are as well. And we're left with this ongoing problem. God wants a people for his own, but they keep doing the wrong thing. God wants a people to dwell with him, to be in his presence, to be in relationship with him, but their continual sin makes that impossible and, and creates this distance between God and them. And so God himself came to fix the problem. Jesus is the son of God, and in Jesus, God came close. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. And he came to atone for sin, truly, their sin and our sin. See, we've sinned too. We've not worshipped God the way he deserves. We, we try to set, set up our own gods, uh, gods that we like, but, uh, the gods that aren't true gods. They're not the real God. This is sin, and it cuts us off from God's presence. But in Jesus, God comes to deal with it. Jesus took on the punishment that we deserve. Jesus atoned for that sin. Jesus was blotted out rejected by God so that we could be accepted, so that we could be written in to the Lamb's book of life, so we could have a place with him. That's what God offers to anyone who will respond to him, to anyone who will repent, acknowledge their sin to him, and then respond in faith, trusting Jesus for their atonement. John 3.16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Let's pray. Father God, we read this passage and we see the reality of sin. We see the reality of your people of the Israelites at that time, turning away from you and doing what you said was not right. And we know that we can do the same. We can either serve other gods or kind of recreate, redefine who you are so that you fit with our world 
because we don't want to just fit with your will. Please forgive us for this because we know that this angers you, this offends you. You've done so much for us and it's so wrong for us to throw that grace in your face. We deserve to be blotted out, but thank you so much that Jesus came to atone for our sin, that Jesus was blotted out so that we could be written in. We thank you, Jesus, that your atonement was full and complete and adequate. Moses couldn't atone for the sin of the people, but you can and you have. Please help us to trust you, to turn to you, to say sorry, and then to live in the hope and the thankfulness of what you've done. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Saviour Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.